This is an ABC podcast. I think that people tend to really give cockroaches a, a bad rap. And that's not surprising because most of the interactions we have with them are only in the form of pest species. But pests, cockroaches only represent about 30 of an estimated 10,000 species worldwide. That's less than, I think, 0.05%. Cockroaches can have a beautiful diversity of form, colour, behaviour. They're loving lovers, fantastic architects. They can form family units from single parents to whole colonies. And they just really perform crucial ecosystem services as well. So I think that they're probably one of the most maligned group of insects, but also one of the most interesting and underappreciated and beautiful as well. What's built like an armoured vehicle, but is super-duper maternal and has a great career as an architect and is an environmentalist. It's the BFG of the cockroach world, the giant burrowing cockroach. A full handful of earth-moving power that lives mostly in Queensland. And it's one of a subfamily of subterranean cockroaches that are completely and utterly and really quite surprisingly different from every cliched cockroach story you've ever heard. Perry Beasley Hall spent years researching these cockroaches for her PhD. So my name's Perry Beasley Hall. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Adelaide and at the moment I'm working on the evolution of subterranean beetles. But I have a background in working on some really interesting cockroaches that I think can teach us a lot about the evolution of animals more broadly. And Perry, who coincidentally at one time was pretty scared of insects. I was actually really terrified of them. But I think that really changed when I encountered some wonderful undergraduate lecturers. Um, and they really opened up the tiny world of insects to me that I'd really never been acquainted with before. And I think once most people get over the, over the fear of associating insects with something dirty or scary, then they can really appreciate them as, as the beautiful animals they are. And that certainly happened in my case. Still, when it came time to meet her first giant burrowing cockroach, the nerves almost took over. So I had the great privilege of working with some fantastic collaborators on these insects who have worked on them for over 40 or 50 years. And my first encounter with them was in an environment where I was trying to act very professional and being introduced to these people for the first time. But they'd also brought along some, some specimens of these cockroaches that were alive. So I not only had to put on a very brave face for their sake, but also act as if I was completely comfortable with these things um, crawling on my arms. But I think from then on, I, I really didn't feel much much fear around them at all. It was really just breaking through that uh, initial introduction. These cockroaches don't look like what we would associate with the pest species that we normally see around our houses. So when people think about cockroaches, they tend to think of the American cockroach, which is the one we'll most usually see scuttering around associated with human habitations. In fact, you're unlikely to see any of the burrowing cockroaches, not least of all because they're wonderfully camouflaged. So they tend to be black, brown, ranging to really brilliant reds. They mostly want to kind of blend in with the soil around them. Some of the species we find have uh, really beautiful splotches of a kind of butterscotch yellow on their bodies as well. So they're, they're definitely not dull by any means. 
These species can reach up to about eight centimetres long, so they're, they're really quite large compared to the pest species we find. But they're also very broad, so they almost form a kind of circular body shape, which I think is certainly not something you would expect from a cockroach. They have very chunky, almost shovel-like legs that they use to shovel into the soil and displace sand. And they're also completely lacking wings. So because of that, the entire back of their body is exposed and you can see the stripes of the segments on their body. So they look really more like a, a striped large beetle. They can range from being quite small, so maybe about um, one to two centimetres long, to yeah, up to eight, and they can weigh up to about 40 grams. So they're, they're not only really large, they're also really heavy as well for an insect. I don't think we normally assume an insect will have weight, so handling them is quite an interesting experience. I mean, I don't want to uh, make anyone assume that these guys are scary in any way, but because their legs are adapted for burrowing, they're covered in quite blunt spikes all over their, their legs to displace soil. And so when they walk on you, they're actually quite itchy. They're obviously not meaning to be, and they don't know that they're walking on a person. But it's a very odd sensation, yeah. Where can these burrowing cockroaches be found? Most of the large species that we would associate with this subfamily of cockroaches can be found in far north Queensland. Those are the really large ones. We can find them on rainforested mountaintops in more humid regions, but also in kind of scrubland associated with, with eucalyptus trees. But relatives of these insects extend all the way down to temperate regions of Victoria, South Australia, and we also do have a few really hardy species that live in the deserts of um, inland WA. How many species would you classify as within this sort of giant cockroach family? Oh, well, that was a massive problem as part of my research because what we tended to assume was a species in this group might not have been one at all. Traditionally, it's thought that there are about 35 species of these guys and they look uh, quite different from one another in some cases in terms of their size. But a major part of my research during my PhD on these insects was really uncovering the fact that just because these guys might have similar adaptations, similar colours, it's actually not reflective of them being necessarily closely related at all. As a result of that, the taxonomic classifications we would normally use, which were based on how they look, are now known to be invalid. So what we thought might have been one species is now, say, four species and vice versa. So I certainly think that even though we know that there are about 35 right now, that could really be in flux in the future. Surprisingly, the burrowing cockroach of Australia have a bit in common with probably our most famous animal, the koala. Every single day they get up to, well... The short answer is not much. And that's because of the food they eat, leaf litter, and lots of the time eucalyptus leaf litter. If you imagine that you're living in scrubland and you're feeding on dried leaf litter, which is what these guys subsist on, you really don't have access to many nutrients and certainly not much moisture. So these insects tend to stay in their burrows, which can be up to one metre deep underground. They're quite, quite impressive architects in that respect. They usually stay in there quite motionless until they need to feed because they don't really have much energy from the food that they rely on. And so conserving as much of that energy as possible is, is obviously really important for them. The main reason they would leave their burrows is firstly to feed, to drag leaf litter and other plant material down into their burrow, both for themselves and their babies. Okay, so they actually sort of do like takeaway food, as in they go out, find something that they want to eat and take it back to their burrow to eat it in peace. 
Yes, they do. Um, they're quite skittish if you try and interact with them when they're eating, if you, you, you see them in captivity. They certainly like to grab as much food as they want, drag it into their burrow and have a little chow down in peace. Am I right in saying that that they do have a bit of a defensive sound if they are disturbed? Yeah, that's right. So something that quite a lot of people wouldn't know about these cockroaches is that they can actually hiss or squeak when they feel threatened. Other entomologists might know that this is quite common for some more exotic cockroach species that live in Madagascar, but the Australian species that we have here actually do this so quietly that we would almost never hear it. But when you do interact with them in captivity, the particularly large species can actually exhale air through their spiracles, which are holes in the side of their body that they breathe through, and they'll exhale so quickly that it causes a, a hissing or a squeaking sound. It sounds as if they'd be incredibly vulnerable when they're up above their burrows and feeding. So when do they actually come out to look for more leaves or vegetation? That's something that I don't think people have really studied much. Um, that we know quite a bit about their behaviour based on anecdotal accounts, but it's not known as to how often they, they feed, mostly because when they actually do retreat into their burrows and when they're looking for leaf litter, they're often so small that they're concealed under the leaf litter itself. Based on what I've seen in captivity, I would say once every week or so, they really do like to take a big stash of food down to burrows and they usually won't come back out until they've, they've exhausted all of that food. And when they're looking for food, do they move a significant distance in order to search for it? Uh, no, I think that they're, they're quite lazy in that respect. They tend to just grab any leaf litter that's close to the entrance of their burrow. And because they will form burrows in areas that are close to for example, eucalyptus trees, they're usually not in short supply of this food. So, you know, they're sort of like COVID lockdown bugs. They only come out for food once a week or so. But if you're a male cockroach, you'll also be driven to move around when rain comes. So during periods of rain for these animals, the males will leave their burrows and will, uh, do what we call wandering to find a female in their, their burrow to mate with. And it's a only then that the males and females will actually be together in the same little environment. Otherwise, they live pretty independently from one another and they're only social when it comes to interacting with their offspring. It's unclear as to how males find females in their burrows and it wouldn't surprise me if males accidentally enter the burrows of other males and then end up fighting. The exoskeleton of these species is very thick and males will usually use this for fighting as well. So they'll butt heads and try try to turn each other over. Because these species are so chunky, if they're turned over, they actually can't ride themselves and they'll die, which is a little bit funny and sad at the same time. Live birth in insects isn't all that common. Most lay eggs externally. The problem with studying a lot of these cockroaches is, is that because they live underground and we often can't find their burrows, we don't understand much about their life cycle. Really, the largest species, the giant burrowing cockroach, is the one that people know most about. And so it'll start off with the mums giving live birth to their babies, which is something that's quite strange for a cockroach. Usually they'll have some kind of egg case. But for some reason, something inherent to these guys going underground has meant that, meant that they actually incubate their babies in their body. They'll give live birth. They'll look after their babies for six months to a year after they're born and all of the babies will leave the burrow eventually, so both the males and the females. Once they both um, grow older, um, both of the sexes will dig a burrow for themselves 
and the cycle will repeat again. So males will start uh, looking for females when there's a rainy period and they'll wander around searching for burrows to mate with a female they'll mate. The male will leave the burrow again, go back to his own house essentially. So he's um, not really uh, caring for the babies much. But then the, the female will incubate uh, the babies again and, and give birth all over again. So they have quite an unusual life cycle compared to a lot of other insects, but it's unfortunate that we don't know very much about it. Cockroaches don't undergo what we would think of as metamorphosis, which means that when they're born, they basically just look like tiny little cockroaches. Um, one thing that I think is very cute is that for most cockroach species, uh, because their exoskeleton hasn't actually hardened yet, when they're born, they're pale white. Um, so they almost look like... Oh, this isn't a very cute description, but they almost look like little prawns or slaters or something. And so their bodies are very soft and they need time to harden up before they uh, could really be independent, which is part of the reason that their mum looks after them for such a long time. And, and do you call like, a, is it a, a litter of cockroaches? I don't know what to call a family group. Oh, I think litter would be quite an appropriate term, but I don't think there's a, there's a formal description. <laughs> <laughs> So how many would the giant burrowing cockroach expect to have in one go? Um, I think that they can give birth to up to, say, 20 or 30 babies in one go. That might be a bit of an overestimate. But when we think about other cockroach species that might have, say, an egg case, they're certainly not limited by numbers by the fact that they give life birth. And it seems to be about the same amount that other species would, um, would give birth to uh, without this kind of odd reproductive mode. It's so fascinating. So they're soft-shelled essentially when they come out, which which makes sense because the mother has to give birth to them, right? And giving birth to 20 like hard little sharp dudes wouldn't be a positive experience. Exactly. The thing is though that when they come out and they're all soft, does that mean that they can't eat the hard leaf litter either? Because you described eucalyptus, that's actually quite a hard-leafed plant. So do they not eat until they've hardened up? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And I think that might be the case, but people uh, really haven't studied the births of these cockroaches very much. One hypothesis that we were working on during my PhD when I was studying these uh, insects is that the mums uh, might actually help the babies inherit some really um, specialised gut microbes that help them survive in that early period. But it's unclear as to whether they would actually be able to directly feed on the leaf litter at that point. So I, I do have to ask them, what are their mouth parts like? So their mouth parts are very different to what we would associate with um, human mouths. They consist of something more similar to a, a cricket. So they're able to both smell with their mouth parts and also chew with them. So it does look a little bit like the aliens in District 9, if anyone has seen that film. Um, but certainly very alien looking compared to what we would think of as a mouth. So when the time comes and the litter of cockroaches have literally hardened up and fattened up under their mother's roof, they're ready to disperse. But how far will this massive beast roam to find a new home? These cockroaches really love to conserve their energy and the answer is not very far at all as far as we know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they only went a few metres away from where they'd grown up. So they tend to be, you know, big fan of small towns staying in the same place. But as far as we know, they, they don't venture very far at all. And that might be for evolutionary reasons. If their mum has raised them in an environment that is really, I guess, lush in terms of food sources, perfect soil consistency, then there's really no reason why they would want to move too far away from there unless things got extremely crowded. Yeah, I could imagine that would be the case because the broad scale environment has 
millions of micro environments within it and I can imagine that the micro environment 50 metres or even 10 metres from one tree to another can be entirely different. Oh, absolutely. And that was something that we ran into problems uh, with when trying to model where these insects live because a lot of the information that we have available is at the scale of, say, one square kilometre and it's simply not possible to get to such a fine scale of microhabitat changes. So I think that it would be very likely that, you know, even 10 metres away from where a cockroach grew up, it could be looking at quite a different environment. When the young cockroach moves off a metre or two away from its maternal burrow and decides that this is the spot where I'm going to dig, once it's dug its burrow, does it stick with that one place for its entire life? Yeah, so unless they're driven out of the burrow for some reason, like the burrow is abandoned because it's become waterlogged, they'll form permanent burrows uh, their entire lives. And in captivity, the giant burrowing cockroaches lives something like seven years, so it's potentially quite some time spent under the eucalyptus roots. So the fact the cockroaches are pretty beefy and that their burrows are hundreds of times their own body length, that makes me think that it'd be sort of easy to spot a burrow entrance from the surface, but that's not the case at all. These cockroaches tend to look quite um, uh, kind of ovoid shape from behind. And so if you find a burrow of these insects, they tend to look almost rectangular, fitting the shape of their body. So they don't tend to excavate these any wider than they can actually fit, which makes sense if you want to conserve energy. From the surface, they don't look very remarkable and they do tend to be covered by leaf litter. Inside, though, they do have a, quite an interesting structure. So the largest species of these cockroaches can actually make burrows that are six metres long and up to one metre deep underground. They tend to be either a kind of meandering structure in terms of their shape or a cleanly cut spiral. We don't really know why they shape in such a way, but we do know that when they terminate at the very bottom of their burrow, they will use these as food stores for their babies. So the mums will keep their babies at the very bottom of the burrow with a pile of leaf litter and she'll look after them in this burrow for up to potentially a year after they're born. What adaptations do they have that are specifically for this burrowing aspect? So these cockroaches have quite a few adaptations that we loosely term troglomorphies. And all that means is that it's an adaptation that's associated with living in some kind of subterranean habitat. So if they're in a cave or burrow, that sort of thing. And they display quite classic troglomorphies in that they'll lose their wings. There's no point in investing your energy in developing wings if you're not going to fly anyway. They have these very chunky, uh, shovel-like front legs that they use for borrowing that kind of looks a little bit like a, like a snowplow or something that makes it easier for them to displace the soil that's in front of them as they're borrowing. And they also have a very thickened hood, I suppose, over their head that acts as a bit of a battering ram so they don't basically just get a, a face full of sand. These cockroaches also have quite reduced eyes. So a lot of people would know that moles, for instance, are missing their eyes because there's no point in developing your eyes if you live in the dark. These cockroaches have undergone quite similar changes, we think, in terms of uh, what natural selection has forced upon them. And so they, they have what we would associate with very distinct cave-adapted or, or burrow-adapted morphologies. We tend to see waste in the form of sand next to their burrows, just in the soil that they've displaced. But I suppose a lot of people would also be wondering about the waste the cockroaches produce themselves, so in their poo. These cockroaches, like I said, are extremely different to any pest species we know of, and that extends to being quite good environmentalists. 
when they uh, actually turn all of this leaf litter that they feed on into waste, they'll basically push their poo back into the soil of their burrow into the walls. And that'll then allow nitrogen and other really essential nutrients and chemicals to be uptaken by the soil and the plants around them. Like a seed bomb or something. So the burrow being so curly, is that a defence strategy? Is it known why it might be like that? It certainly could be. Uh, it could also be a mechanism to prevent flooding. We know that these cockroaches really don't like it when it gets too humid in their burrows and then they'll have things to deal with like the growth of fungus and potentially other predators being flooded into their burrows. But no, it's not known as to exactly why they do these shapes. It certainly wouldn't surprise me if this was some form of defence mechanism. Is there any predators that have worked out how to dig them up? We're not sure if any predators would have figured out how to dig them up as such, but they would certainly be at risk of predation when the males are wandering around after a rainy period. But we do know that they face predators that are a bit smaller and closer to their size. So centipedes, for example, and spiders tend to try and crawl down their burrow and then eat them. And that might be part of the reason that they do have these kind of spiral burrows, so they're a bit more difficult for any adversaries to crawl into. So they dig their own house, which has good drainage, keeps a nice stable temperature, has room for the kids and is right near all the important things, the leaf litter supermarket. And they've got one of those recycling sewerage systems on top of that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They're, they're not only uh, very good architects, but they're also very pragmatic ones. <laughs> Dr Perry Beasley-Hall spent years looking at these burrowing cockroaches of Australia, trying to unpick their evolutionary past for her PhD. We knew from some recent studies that had just occurred a few years before my PhD that the way that these cockroaches looked probably didn't reflect the way they'd evolved. And what I mean by that is that if we see five species that look very similar to one another, that didn't necessarily mean that they shared an ancestor and they might have actually come to look very similar for very different reasons. What we now know is that it seems like these cockroaches evolved from a group of wood-feeding cockroaches that came from Southeast Asia. These guys would have moved into Australia about 25 million years ago or so, and as Australia began to aridify, because it used to be quite green, some of these wood-feeding cockroaches were driven underground as the wood that they previously lived in became less and less available. And so these really represent just very specialised branches of the evolutionary tree of a completely different group of insects. And they have some really interesting implications for evolutionary theory. Like what? Well, we tend to assume that evolution is an entirely random process, and this really contributes further to the body of knowledge that, in some cases, it might actually be quite predictable if animals and other organisms are being subjected to very, very similar environments and uh, selective pressures from natural selection. So in this case, all of these insects essentially did the same thing in an evolutionary sense in response to Australia becoming more arid. That really contests the idea that in the face of climate change or, or a similar kind of selective pressure that animals might respond in all kind of different ways. And this indicated to us that there might be a little bit of constraint on the evolutionary pathway that animals can take in response to such stresses. So why is it important to understand the evolutionary history of these cockroaches? Well, we can't conserve what we don't know exists. So a really important element of this project was really trying to figure out which branches of this evolutionary tree represented distinct species or not. 
that has really important conservation implications because previously we might have thought, okay, well, this is one population out of five populations that make up a species. It's, it's okay if it goes extinct because it won't make the whole species extinct. If we now know that that population is a distinct species in itself, then we really need to start working on conserving that animal and really thinking about what measures we can put in place to make sure it doesn't go extinct itself. But because these haven't been assessed yet, we really don't have an idea of what state uh, this whole subfamily is in and we don't have an idea if they need help or not. Dr Perry Beasley-Hall is now working on other subterranean insects and I can't wait to have her back on the show actually to talk about this weird world again soon. And next week on the program, we'll stick to an insect theme as Dr Kate Umbers goes to the top of Australia's highest mountain searching for skyhoppers. I'm Ann Jones, and until next time, I'll probably be looking for burrowing cockroach holes in the bush. I hope you do a bit of that too. And remember to meet me here for next time, as that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.